Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue the series that we have been going through for the last couple months that we're calling Understanding the Times. If you're visiting with us, we are engaging with a lot of the events and things going on in our culture right now, looking at uh, how to respond to them uh, from a biblical and scriptural perspective. Today we're going to look at the concept of government. Uh, if you were in Bob Frank's class, uh, you already got a, a foretaste of a little bit of what we're going to talk about, although it's not going to be as lively. We're not going to have any elders killing other elders, <laughs> and no violence like that in this uh, setting. Uh, you can talk to Bob Frank if you want to find out more about what happened there. We're going we're gonna to look at government. We're not going to dive into all of the issues that Bob is getting into. So if you haven't come to that class, I would encourage you. Uh, it's not too late. Jump in there next Sunday and you'll learn a lot. Uh, today we're going to pull back and look at a little broader picture, a little bit more specific uh, aspect. But one of the things that is clear in 2020 is government and its role and our interaction with government. Those things are all front and center. As, uh, as citizens of the U.S., we ask the question, uh, at least I ask the question, where does the constitutional authority of the president, of Congress, of the governor, where does it stop? Does the governor have the right to tell you you can't leave your house? Does he have the right to shut down the whole state kind of thing? As Christians, one of the questions we have to engage with is, at what point... When he says, you may no longer meet, do we say, no, we're not going to obey that command? One of the examples that Bob brought up in the class was what's going on right now in California with Grace Community Church and John MacArthur and their engagement with their governor there. Again, we're not going to get into those details here, although I anticipate in the rousing Q&A session we're going to have, uh, I heard Jordan complaining last week about how hard your questions were for him, and uh, they weren't that hard, Jordan. Grow up. But you're welcome to ask any question you want during the Q&A session. But we're going we're gonna to focus in on uh, a little bit different uh, aspect, and, and I have a different purpose than what Bob is doing and, and some of those questions. But again, Q&A, we're happy to jump in. So we're going to talk about government from the scriptural perspective. Then we're going to talk about what's good about it, and then where government can go wrong, and, and how uh, one of the ideologies in our in our culture today is forcing government, at least part of government, to go a certain way, and we want to be aware of that. So, government. First question that I like to ask in a, in a study like this is, what is it? Oh, wrong one. What, government, what is it? Have you ever thought about defining government? If somebody said, give me a one-sentence dictionary definition of government, would you be able to express something that captures the heart of what government is. Well, the, the simplest definition that I've ever heard, the one that is concise and I think captures the heart of it, is legal force. Legal force. Think about it. If someone comes with force, with weapons, and tries to conform people into their image, but they don't have the legal right to do it, that's not a government. That's tyranny, that's anarchy, that's, that's something else. If someone has the authority to, to make laws, but they don't have any way to enforce those laws, 
then we don't really have a government there either. Think about what has happened in our own nation just a couple months ago in what was called CHAZ, right? The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. We had a group of people move in to Seattle and take over several blocks, and they exercised force, and they pushed out whomever they wanted to, and they said, we are now going to create this zone that is ours. They had the force to do it, but they didn't have the legal right to do it. That was not a government. On the other hand, the, those who did have the legal right to oversee that area, they didn't enforce it. They simply stood away and allowed this to happen. So at least in that situation, they were not exercising true government, they stood back and allowed someone else to come in and take over. That wasn't government either. If you're going to have laws, you've got to be able to enforce them. That's at the heart of what government is. A few other uh, associated terms and words that we see in the, in the scripture, uh, rulers, Bob is using that term a lot, rulers, the rules, the, rule, the rulers, the ruled, and the rules of the rulers to the ruled, uh, the state capital S state, lowercase s state, the, the magistrate kind of thing, uh, nations, dominions, kingdoms, all of those are terms in the Bible that have to do with government, with legalized force. And if you have borders and you have a king or any other governance structure, you have a nation, you have a, uh, a country. So those are some things that we see in scripture. I want to spend some time this morning in the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13. As we as a church have wrestled with the question, how far and how long do we submit to the governing authorities when they say you're not allowed to meet together or you're only allowed so many people in the auditorium, that kind of thing. One of the passages that we wrestle with and that I know many of you wrestle with is Romans 13 because here we have an apostle of Jesus Christ saying submit to the governing authorities. What I want us to see is Romans 13 is a really bad chapter break. Paul does not begin his discussion of government in chapter 13. It actually begins a little earlier in chapter 12, starting with verse 17. And this will help us create a framework for what government is and what Paul is getting at in chapter 13. So chapter 12, verse 17 says... Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Okay, an emphatic statement. Never do this. Someone does evil to you, the one response you're not allowed to have is to do evil back to that person. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That's in the same context here. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't go pick a fight with someone who has done harm to you. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Now, at this point, if you stopped right there, you'd think, oh, great. So somebody comes and does something awful to me. They burn down my house. They steal my car, whatever. They do something awful to me, and... According to the New Testament, I just have to lay down and let them walk all over me, right? This is doormat theology. Just suffer whatever evil somebody wants to do to you. That sounds like a bad situation. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but, verse 19, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One of the things that we as Christians can rest in is that there is an ultimate supreme court who is omniscient, who sees everything that happens on planet Earth. He knows everybody's actions. He knows everybody's attitudes. And someday, every human being will stand before that God as judge and give an account for their wrongdoing. And anything they've done wrong against you will be brought into that judgment. But is this only a future thing? Is he only talking about that final judgment day? The answer is no, and we'll see as we go through that. To finish up chapter 12, leave room for the wrath of God. You, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If someone does evil to you and you retaliate, you've been overcome by evil. If you say, I've been treated unjustly, I'm going to take justice in my own hands and retaliate. I'm going to march into a city and start burning down businesses because injustice has been done. I'm going to smash up people's property because I feel like injustice has been done. If you do that, the Apostle Paul says, you have been overcome by evil. It is not our place as individuals to retaliate for perceived injustice. See that? It's right, in, it's right here. I'm just reading the Bible to you. Instead of that, overcome evil with good. Do good to those who mistreat you. And of course, Paul here at this point is just echoing what he heard uh, that Jesus had said. It's in that context that we get chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Every king, every government that has ever existed, its authority derives from God himself. God is the author of everything. Did you ever notice that the heart of the word authority is author? If you're the author of a book, who gets to decide what the characters do? Who gets to decide what the rules are for that book? Well, you do. If you're the author, you can write anything you want. The characters don't get to decide what their role is, right? God is the author of all things. He's the one that gets to set the rules. So all authority derives from the author of heaven and earth himself, who is God. So if there's authority, then it's from God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves. That may be alluding to the final judgment, to ultimate condemnation, but as he goes on here, we see that God also brings punishment in the here and now through the governing authorities. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is the governing authority, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, again the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. I'm going to hone in on that verse 4. If you do what is evil, be afraid. Do you not want to be harmed by police? Don't resist arrest. Don't do things that would cause the police to come after you. If you commit crimes, you should expect the governing authorities to bring harm to you. That's their job, is to punish those who do wrong. That's when you're afraid. It bears the sword. Now, we have to go back in our history to think about swords here. Uh, our police officers don't carry swords anymore. They would lose the battle if they did. But the sword was the instrument of execution, of doing battle. Think with me for a minute. Put, put, on your, put it on your thinking caps here for a second. Do you know when the very first government on earth was enforced with a sword? Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned at the very beginning and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden? How did God enforce the boundary to say, Adam and Eve, you're not allowed back in the garden? He sent an angel, and what was the angel holding? A flaming sword. Danger, if you come back this way, I will stop you at all costs because it's now illegal for you to go into the garden. That's the job of governing authorities. It bears the sword for a purpose, and that is to punish evildoers. That's its job. It's an avenger. I know you all thought avengers were superheroes. They're not. An avenger is someone who brings wrath upon evildoers. I guess you could argue that's what the Avengers were doing, sort of. Peter says something very similar. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. This is fundamentally what the government is supposed to do. If you break the law, they're to punish you. If you don't, they're supposed to say, way to go. That's good. Paul says something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Think about what has been happening the last several months. Because law enforcement in some cities have not been enforcing the law, people are not living quiet, peaceful lives. It's chaos. It's destruction. And people are afraid. 
Think about the places in America, for instance, that you are not excited about walking in downtown, for instance. Think about the cities that you think, you know, that's the last place I want to be on Friday night at 10.30 p.m. Why? Because there are criminals there? Yes, but there are criminals all over the place. But if the law is not enforced, then we have fear to be in those areas. If, we're, if we feel like here's a place where the law is enforced, that deters criminals, and I, I feel somewhat protected, so I'm, I'm more comfortable walking in those cities. And we can live quiet and peaceful lives. This is one of the reasons we should be praying for our president, for our governor, for our mayor at every level, that the Lord would move in their hearts to bring about what law and order so that we can be peaceful. And what do we see so often right now in the name of peaceful protests is just the opposite. And the law enforcement is not doing their job. They're failing at what God has called them to do at this point. Now, this broadens out, we talked a little bit about this in Bob's class, this broadens out to, uh, to social order a little bit further. Uh, I'm currently teaching my son to drive. Have you ever crossed the border from El Paso, Texas into Juarez, Mexico? Would you like to teach someone to drive on the other side of the border? Their rules and regulations are a little different just a mile away from Texas. Uh, think about it. Our government has pretty strict rules on how fast you can go, on whether or not you can turn here or turn there, when you can turn, what lane you can be in, where and when it's proper to change lanes. So much so that you know, every time I drive to this building, which is a lot, I get on Centennial back here and I think, I can see there is nobody on this road, and I have to go 35 miles an hour. Come on! But on the plus side, as I'm teaching my son to drive, once I'm convinced he has pretty good control of the vehicle, I'm not afraid that people are going to be chaotic in driving well, that's not true. I'm not convinced they're going to break all the rules in driving such that our lives are in danger. We have a pretty well-regulated system, and it's good. It allows for peace and order. And we can talk about all kinds of other examples of that. Imagine what the skies would be like if the government had no say in air travel. I was talking about this with, with Krista this week, thinking, you know, if the government gets too involved in, say, car sales, or maybe they're not involved enough, and uh, you go to a place and you just buy lemon after lemon, you're going to be out money if you buy a bad car, and that's no good. But it's not causing deaths. If air travel, if airline, the airline industry is not regulated, how many people are going to die learning the hard way I shouldn't fly that airline? Right? There's, there's good here, there's benefit, and all the other infrastructure and that kind of thing. And we debate and we discuss, as Christians, as, as just citizens of America, we debate and discuss how far should the government be allowed in. And, that, and that's a reasonable discussion. The scripture does not get into all the nuances of that, so we're left to wrestle with some of those things. But we can see the clear benefit of the government punishing sin, punishing crime, I should say, 
and, and preventing uh, chaos in that sense. It gets a little harder when we start looking at how far should the government protect us from harming ourselves. For example, uh, drunk driving. Most of us would agree it's a good law that you can't drive under the influence. You're going to do harm to yourself and most likely going to harm someone else. It gets a little bit more difficult when we talk about seatbelts. Now, some of you with libertarian bones in your body are getting a little uncomfortable. You're twitching. I can see you twitching. Should the government require you to wear a seatbelt when the only person harmed, if you get into a wreck and you don't have a seatbelt, is you? That's a question. That's a debate that goes on. Obviously, those who believe the government should regulate that have won, and that's, uh, that's where we are. But those are the kind of things we wrestle with, we struggle with. But we can see the good of some of this in order and peaceful living and that kind of thing. There is another side, of course. Government itself is good. Government itself is ordained by God, but that does not mean that every person in the role of authority is good. I didn't get an amen for that? Okay, yeah. I mean, throughout all of human history, we've had corruption at every level of governing authorities. Why? Because everyone who has ever ruled is a fallen sinner. You have one fallen sinner, he can be a bad king. You have a committee of fallen sinners and they can be a bad government. That's just the way it works. And where there is power, there is always temptation to want more. This goes way back even to the time of Israel and the Jewish kingdom. Let me read for you a few verses where the, the people of Israel had been ruled over by judges under God's authority. And Samuel was the, the prophet judge and he uh, set his sons up to be judges. And they were bad. They were taking bribes. They were uh, not executing justice. And the people rebelled against that and said, hey, Samuel, we want to be like the other nations. We demand that you give us a king. Well, Samuel was offended by that. And he comes to God and complains. And God says, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. But go ahead and give them a king. But tell them what the king will do. And here's what Samuel, under God's instruction, told the people the king would do. This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will take also your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. So here's God is saying, go ahead and give them a king, but warn them, as soon as you place someone in that kind of power, he's going to want more and more and more. You've heard the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's become a proverbial statement because it's, it's, it's proverbially true. It's hard. I mean, when's the last time you saw government give back some of the ground they had taken 
in their power. It's really hard, very rare for that to happen. Solomon wrote about it like this in Ecclesiastes. If, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. What Solomon is doing, he's looking out, and he becomes kind of cynical, and he says, it goes all the way up to the top. Someone, the, high, the king is receiving the prophets, but then there's somebody under him who's also milking those below him and below him, and, and it's eventually the poor and the helpless that so often uh, get the shortest end of this stick. It's just kind of part of human nature. Governments tend toward wanting more and more power. That's been true forever. This is nothing new to our day, nothing to, to our generation or our form of government. And again, these are the kinds of things that citizens debate, that, that Christians debate, that we, we wrestle with and say, okay, how far is too far for the governing authorities? What I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is not dive into those good questions and discussions, but I want to bring it back to where we've been through this whole series. And that is dealing with this stronghold, this, this ideology that has set itself up against the knowledge of God that has infiltrated our government that is trying to destroy the church. And that is what we've been calling cultural Marxism. You, you may have heard if you watched the uh, first presidential debacle, the, I mean debate the other night, uh, you may have heard, I think the president said he accused the Democrats of being overrun or taken captive by the radical left. Do you remember hearing that statement? And that's been a, a fairly common charge that's been levied from the right uh, about the left. What does that mean? Because it's, it's easy for us to just assume one party's good, the other party's bad, and so don't be for this, be for that. And I have said, I've, I've never endorsed a candidate, by the way. I've never endorsed a, a party. I have said, if you look at the Democratic Party and you read the platform, they are for, on paper, they are for all kinds of ungodly things. We need to know that when we go to the voting booth in a few weeks. The platform itself. It hasn't always been that way. And, and so the, the, the Republicans who are saying this are not necessarily arguing from a Christian perspective, but I want us to think about it from a Christian perspective. The radical left they're talking about is the Marxism, that it's penetrating into the Democratic Party and taking it the way of Marxism. I want to walk through with you a few statements written by Frederick Engels. He was the co-author with Karl Marx of the Communist Manifesto. The manifesto was written uh, in the mid-1800s, and they also wrote at that time uh, a catechism. Some of you from more traditional religious backgrounds know what a catechism is. They called it a catechism on purpose. They called it their confession of faith. They didn't publish it right away. It didn't make it into the Communist Manifesto, but it was published a little bit later. But I want to walk you through some of the questions in this Communist Manifesto, or Communist uh, catechism to show you where they are going. Question 18 said this, what will be the course of this revolution? Remember, they're trying to 
raise up the working class to overthrow the owner class. The proletariat trying to destroy the, the upper class. What will be the, cause of the course of the revolution? Limitation of private property through progressive taxation, heavy inheritance taxes, abolition of inheritance through collateral lines, brothers, nephews, etc., forced loans, etc. We hear it all the time from at least one side when it comes to presidential debates. We want more taxes on the rich, on the wealthy. Now, objectively or subjectively, I don't care too much about that. Because when they raise taxes on the rich, they're not raising taxes on me, okay? So fine. But ideology-wise, it's significant. It's not just more greedy politicians. It's part of the long-term plan. A progressive tax means if you're in this lower tax bracket, you're taxed one way, but the higher your income and your worth, the higher the percentage of taxes they take. For the Marxist, the reason is they want to take the money from people and give it to the state. So it's not merely we think the rich should pay their fair share. That's not the ultimate point. The point is to destroy private property. They say it right here in the, in the catechism. Destroy private property. Over time, the more they can tax the rich, the more the money can go to the state. Same thing with the inheritance tax. If you have a lot of money, a lot of property, a lot of wealth, traditionally you can just bequeath that to your children. The government says not so fast, the Marxist government does at least, we want to take a big chunk of that so that over the generations, less and less of that is handed down as private property and it goes to the state. See that? Equal inheritance rights for children born in and out of wedlock. Now, again, that may sound just like they're saying, okay, here's this rich guy, and if he has this family, but he goes over here and has this fling, that it's not that poor child's fault that he wasn't married to the, the, the guy's mother, so this guy should take care of both parties. That's not the goal. The goal is, if we can take from this rich family and distribute it more, then there's less power and less private property for the original rich guy. Gradual expropriation of landowners, industrialists, railroad magnates, and ship owners, partly through competition by state industry, partly directly through compensation in the form of bonds. We need state-run businesses to compete with the privately held businesses and or selling government bonds, giving out government bonds so that more money comes to the state to destroy private property and private business. Organization of labor or employment of proletarians, that's working class, and on publicly owned land in factories and workshops with competition among the workers being abolished and with the factory owners in so far as they exist being obliged to pay the same high wages as those paid by the state. So we want to raise up businesses that are owned by the state and force private businesses to pay the same high wages so that we can eventually drive out the private businesses so that we destroy this obliteration between the haves and the have-nots, the state regulates everything, and everybody is just happy. 
That's the goal. An equal obligation on all members of society to work until such time as private property has been completely abolished. The Marxist is genuinely after saying there's no such thing as private ownership. It's not yours. It all belongs to the state and they're going to distribute it however they want to. Question, oh, one more. Centralization of money and credit in the hands of the state through a national bank with state capital and the suppression of all private banks and bankers. What happened in March when the, when the, the stock market crashed and burned in one day, the greatest fall ever? Well, if you're like me, you bought stocks. <laughs> it's a good day. Everybody panicked. What's going to happen? The whole economy has been shut down. Who came in to save the day? It's what we call the Federal Reserve, which is the National Bank. And they started pumping money into the system. Now, there's been some good of that. And we can debate sometime economic theory if you want to. The point is the whole idea of having a Federal Reserve comes from Marxism to eventually put private banks out of business and give the government control of all of our funding. Education of all children from the moment they can leave their mother's care in national establishments at national cost. The strength of the family in educating children lies at the heart of Western civilization and capitalism. If they're going to destroy Western civilization and capitalism, which is their stated purpose, they have to take education out of the home and educate people via the state. Thinking on the positive side of what could happen in a state-run school system. It could be efficient, it could be effective, it could be wonderful. We all pitch in some money, they hire the very best teachers, have the best curriculum, we have the resources to really make this great. But what happens when that state says we reject God, we now endorse evolutionary theory, and we demand that evolutionary theory is taught in every school. And we forbid teaching theology, at least Christian theology. And we're going to teach critical theory. And we're going to teach white supremacy and all of these things. Now, it's a very different setup. This is all intentional. It's part of the game plan to destroy Western civilization. What will be the influence of communist society on the family? It will transform the relations between the sexes into a purely private matter which concerns only the persons involved and into which society has no occasion to intervene. It can do this since it does away with private property and educates children on a communal basis and in this way removes the two bases of traditional marriage, the dependence rooted in private property of the women on the man and the children on the parents. Taking away the major things that, that families and, and marriage are supposed to do, well, it doesn't matter. Just let them do. It's going to be a private thing, and eventually it'll disintegrate. What do we see now? The fewest number of people married, percentage-wise, ever, and the lateness of marriage. I know some of you have thought it's just because these millennial guys won't go after millennial girls until they're 35. It's part of the system. It's part of the intent to reduce marriage to a pleasure experience.
We don't need marriage for that anymore. All right, here's where it hits home. Maybe it's hit home already, but here's where this is all leading. Question 23, what will be its attitude, that is communism's attitude, to existing religions? Communism is the stage of historical development which makes all existing religions superfluous and brings about their disappearance. This is the end game. We don't need religion anymore. We have reached utopia. That's what the Marxist says. Do you remember Marx, Karl Marx had a famous statement about religion. He called religion the opiate of the masses. Have you heard that? Think about what that means. Opiate. Think of those drugs that are hallucinogenic. They, they, they take you into another world kind of thing. What he meant by that was religion is a tool used by those evil capitalists to give hope to the working class that although you're not going to get anything in this life because you're working for me, you have the next life to look forward to. Think about slavery in America in the mid-19th century. Think about some of the Negro spirituals that still we sing today. Swing low, sweet chariot. What's next? Coming forward to carry me home. I looked over Jordan. What did I see? Come. That's what they did, right? Their lives were so literally oppressive. They had no hope in anything good in their existence here. So they started singing all these songs and pondering, okay, life is really bad here, but someday I'm going to heaven and it's going to be wonderful. That's what Marx said all religion is. For the working class, you're just being squashed by the man, but the, 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 the haves, the owners, they want you to think about eternal life. They want you to think about heaven so that you don't get so frustrated in this life that you rebel that you'll say, oh, but next life is going to be great. But once the Marxists have destroyed capitalism, Western civilization, and brought in utopia, you don't need that hope because we have heaven on earth right here and now it's going to be wonderful. So it's superfluous. Religion is superfluous and it'll disappear which is what they want, It's what they're after. We have to know these things as we observe, as we listen to politicians, as we go into the voting booths on November 3rd. And not just November 3rd. Future elections as well. And not just at the federal level, state, local levels. We need to be informed of the agendas, of the, of the principles underlying those who are running for office and the policies and the proposition. We need to know these things and be aware of those agendas that are ultimately seeking to destroy the church. Private property is a biblical concept. Marriage, family, biblical concepts, of course. That should be enough to get our, our attention. But when their stated motive is we want to eliminate religion and especially Christianity, which we have saw in weeks past, this is an ideology that has set itself up against God, and we have to resist it. And we have the opportunity in this nation to do that via the voting booth. So, application one, vote. 
and vote well. Know the issues and vote well. Secondly, remember this. Our risen Lord gathered his disciples together and he said, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is called the King of Kings. That means there's the United States government, there's the Russian government, the Chinese government, every government on the planet has a sort of a king. They all are under the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will answer to him. He is working through those governments. Remember Paul who wrote Romans 13 and said, submit to every governing authority. Do you remember what the authority was like at the time? Caesar called himself a god, and he was about ready to persecute Christians like few ever have since. And Paul himself was about to have his head chopped off by that Caesar, and I think Paul knew it. And he still said, submit to the authorities. Why? Because even Caesar is under the rule of Jesus Christ. So we don't despair. And we don't find our hope in the government. We don't find our meaning and purpose and our support in the government. We don't look to the government for the things that only God can supply. It's a useful tool. Three times in Romans 13, he's called a servant or a minister. He's a, the government is a useful tool in the hand of Jesus Christ to bring about whatever he wants on this planet. So to the degree that it's good, we applaud, we celebrate, it's good. Where it's not good, we have to decide what the right response is, but we take our hope in Jesus Christ, not in government. But we take our action in the voting booth. So I wanna tell you, encourage you, church, read. You know you get those booklets that have all the things on the ballot, and how many of you throw them in the trash? Or if you're conscientious, you recycle them. Read them. Read them. Marcy's done a great job of keeping us alert on what's going on with the pro-life stuff. Maybe we need some other people to say, here are some other issues. Here are some other politicians. You know, when it comes to, uh, to um, uh, state judges, I look at that and go, I don't have a clue who any of these people are and what they stand for. Maybe somebody can pull together some of that information and help us. But it matters. Our vote counts. But ultimately... It's all under Jesus Christ. Let's pray. All right, everybody, we will get started here. Come on in if you would like. All right. Oh, we have questions. All right. What is the justification for meeting together as Christians when government says people can't, especially when meeting virtually is possible? That's a good question. I encourage you to come back and ask Bob Frank that next week. But if you're an elder, don't shoot another elder. Um, yeah, that's a hard one. Obviously, we've wrestled with this. I'm not going to say I'm giving you the official frack elder answer. I'm going to give you the Doug answer uh, because we've not discussed this in principle uh, abstractly as elders. We've decided what we're going to do right now. 
but that doesn't mean we've come down on a, this is the, the, the way we see it on, on every circumstance. So there is some danger here in, in answering to generally because you have to take into consideration circumstances. Um, so one question that comes to my mind is, what authority does the governor have? There was a headline this week. I didn't read the article, but I think I know what the uh, article was about by the headline because so often the headlines are so right, right? Um, it, it, maybe some of you read this. Didn't, the, uh, didn't a judge overrule the governor of Michigan this week and said that she had overextended her authority in the lockdown issuance? That, uh, and there's a state rep here in Colorado that has threatened to sue Governor Polis for the same thing. The highest state government is not Governor Polis, it is the state constitution. And the question is, where does the governor's emergency powers start and stop? Uh, most of us would agree, I, I would agree with this, that when there is a pandemic threat, the governor has the right to shut everything down, stay home until we know what's going on here. I, I didn't have any problem with his original mandate. But at some point, because we are ruled by laws and governors don't make laws, Congress makes laws, state Congress makes laws, at some point that should be handed over to the Congress to decide if they're going to make law. So at some point, the governor no longer has the authority to make those kind of decisions. And here locally, for us, another, another piece of this is, uh, I'm just gonna throw, lump this in, maybe I'm opening another can of worms, but lump this in with the mask mandate. Is that one of the questions? Yeah. Where does the current mask mandate come to? Yeah, thank, good question. Um, when the governor laid out his rationale for this, he knew he could not enforce it. If you go back and listen to his press conference, I'll watch the whole thing. He knew he couldn't enforce it. He said, well, with local businesses, we can get there through uh, obscenity laws. If you go into a business and take off all your clothes, they can call the police and the police will escort you out because of obscenity laws. He said, I think we can get there with masks through the obscenity laws. So if, that, if those are the hoops that he would have to jump, to jump through to enforce this, he knows he has no legal right to mandate masks. So we are not bound to everything the governor says. The governor does not have that authority in the state of Colorado to just issue decrees. What does the Constitution say? What has state Congress, what laws has the state Congress passed? That's where it is. And then this Emergency Powers Act idea, that's where it gets more subjective. So again, I would want to take specifics in, in mind here. But again, the governor is not the highest authority in our state. The Constitution is and the laws passed by Congress. So that's why there's some... Uh, some room for debate and dialogue when the governor issues a mandate. Anybody want to follow up on that? Jordan? Yeah, no, go ahead, Will.
Right, so Will is just saying the, the, uh, the oath the governor takes is to uphold the rights given to us in the Constitution, and when he oversteps those bounds, he's now violating what's required there. So, as I said, this is a, this is a complex debate for sure. I, again, I don't think anybody, put it this way, uh, everybody has understood intuitively, if there's pandemic and meeting together is guaranteed half of us are gonna die, love for your neighbor, everything else says, okay, let's not meet until we figure out what's going on. But we're talking about a different question now. Yeah, great, great point. All right, somebody else? Yes. I was just going to say, doesn't the Constitution give, give the, governor, the governor the right to do what uh, he needs to do to fulfill what the Constitution says? And isn't he protecting or she protecting the citizens when she makes rulings like that? Yes, and that's very much in line with what Will was just saying. Uh, but that's the question before us. This now, the closing down businesses, mask mandates, the safer at home, all those different iterations, does he now have the warrant and the legal right to make those, again, those are, he's acting like there are laws and Congress makes laws, not the governor. Yes? Emergency powers for the governor. Yes? That's the justification. Uh, that's, yes, that's how it started, was emergency powers. And, and again, civil order, I think, requires the president and governors to have that power. There are times of crisis that someone has to be able to make immediate decisions to protect its citizens. That, that just has to be true. I, any, any constitutional scholar, I think, would agree with the wisdom of that. And again, for the first few weeks, most people that I know, including myself, would say, okay, this is an unknown thing. They were predicting millions and millions of deaths. Okay, yeah, let's all pause and see what's gonna happen. But remember, the original justification was to flatten the curve for two weeks. That's a long two weeks. Right. Yes? So then at what point do we begin to obey God rather than man in their making of unjust law? Because in Romans, like you said, we're supposed to obey the authority that was given to them by God for us. Mm -hmm. But what if they begin to make unjust laws or mandates that they're doing now? I mean, we never quarantine healthy people. Right. Right. And that is the question. At what point does the government cross over where now they are commanding us to sin? We we have Romans 13, obey your government. We have Hebrews meet together. At what point are those in conflict? Now some would argue we can meet together virtually. Zoom. Others would argue we were able to meet in groups of less than 10 so we can do smaller groups. Uh, of course, that flies in the face of some things in the Bill of Rights, right? So that is the question. That's the reason why there's different opinions among uh, Christians and, and pastors and elders is because uh, where's that line that they've crossed? I think all of us would agree when the governor or government says, you do this, and it's in direct contradiction of what God says, we obey God, not men. We're trying to figure out where has that line been crossed? Because we are told to obey the governors as well, so we're trying to figure that out. Yeah, Carolyn? Yeah, so uh, referencing the, uh, the MacArthur and Grace Community Church battle, and so far they've won at every turn. It's going to cost them a lot of time and money, but uh, it seems very likely they will, they will end up on the winning side of that because of the Constitution, right? Somebody over here? 
At what point does the mask mandate become overreach? <laughs> yeah, see, that raises so many questions. Uh, I don't intend to spend a lot of time here. I've, I've read as many studies as I can find on different sides of this, and the medical community is completely confusing <laughs> on whether masks help, whether they hurt, what kind of mask it has to be. There was a report just this past week from the Association of Surgeons and I forget the other group that basically walked through and said, the masks you all are wearing in here right now do nothing good. The WHO, the CDC, the, the Surgeon General have been on both sides of that very question multiple times. And so they have warranted the response they're getting when, when they keep going back and forth on that. So, um, yeah, that, that I think is very much tied to the benefit that masks bring. If that were conclusive, then the, the legal system would have a, a heavier argument to say you should wear a mask because if they could prove it prevents the spread. In fact, they wouldn't even have to legalize it. If they would convince us that was true, everybody would wear a mask. I mean, I would. If, if it were beyond reasonable doubt that this prevents, of course. Uh, but then that does beg the question you brought up. Do they, do we, is, that, is that a portable quarantine? And <laughs> Are we quarantine healthy people? with the mask. So uh, that's a hard question, no doubt. Is that it? No. Too bad. Does love require an individual to wear a mask, even though wearing a mask perpetuates the life? How dangerous COVID-19? Yeah, again, it comes back to, uh, I think we need to be very careful about legislating this for somebody else. Uh, as Christians, we need to be very careful about determining what other people should do in this, because the evidence is just not there. Uh, does love dictate? Well, there's some evidence that, that masks actually harm the wearer. So is this a situation where I am obligated now to wear a mask that's going to bring me harm for the hypothetical possible benefit of somebody? I, these are just hard questions. And uh, so my answer is, don't know. <laughs> Marxism seeks to destroy nuclear families, so why does communist China still have a high percentage of nuclear family households? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, they are certainly not households in the same way that, that we would think. Uh, they're also learning, you know, they've lifted the, uh, the restriction on how many kids you can have up from one because they're realizing, uh-oh, if we keep doing this, we're not going to have any people to rule in a couple of generations. So reality kind of, and, and nature, what we call natural theology and natural law kind of smacks in the face of some of these things over time. Uh, so, and it's also a very convenient means of control. Think about it. Uh, back in the New Testament period, uh, what we call feminism was alive and well in the New Testament period. And Caesar fought against it with everything he had. Why? Because the so-called patriarchy was a much more efficient way of controlling the citizenry. If, if there's one man in charge of the whole household and I as the king can control that man, I got the whole household. If everybody's free... Now I've got to control all of them, and it's much harder. So there is a very practical reason why family of some sort has a benefit to uh, a nationality, to a government. So I don't know if that's rationale. It may just be that nature is kicking back against the, the goats, but it is a good question, interesting question.
Do you believe cultural Marxism is part of the Democratic Party platform? If so, why? Um, the document, I read it again yesterday, does not overtly state anything about Marx. Uh, so I certainly can't say they are claiming Marxism as their, uh, their party platform. Many of the democratic leaders sure sound alike and are enacting policies or want to enact policies that fit in line with Marxism. Um, so I, I can't prove it if, if no one says it. I mean, Marxism is still a bad word in politics. Nobody's going to come out and say they're Marxists. No one's going to come out and say they're communists or want to go that direction or socialists. Um, but they are certainly making decisions that are in line with socialism and Marxism and communism. Any follow-up on that? How do we know that our vote counts and is basically and is biblically proven that voting or not voting is a sin? How do we know that our vote counts? Let me divide that question. Um, well, we don't. I mean, there's no way for you to be able to trace your vote to the final tally that's made. Um, that's where whenever there's reason to doubt the integrity of the system, uh, that, that's, that's hard. And, uh, and obviously there's a big battle, big debate with the whole mail-in balloting and all that that's going on. We, we, we don't, we don't. You should still vote. <laughs> and is it biblically proven that voting or not voting is a sin? Um... I would say I don't see anything in the Bible that would in any way say that voting is a sin. Who you vote for might be, but the act of voting doesn't violate any biblical principle. The reverse question, is it a sin not to vote? Um, yeah, I don't know that I could go to any biblical passage and prove that either. Uh, I would want to know why you wouldn't vote. Um, you are, in a sense, voting by not voting. All right, you are impacting the outcome of who is in office by not voting, so why not just go vote? Anybody want to follow up on that? Yes, Kayla. Sorry, you're in the dark back there. I can't see that hand. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people who say that. The, the comment is, uh, if uh, Democrats win, and I assume you mean if they win all three branches, right? Uh, then, or at least maybe Congress and Senate and White House. Uh, this will be the last free election. Um, I, I understand that sentiment. You know, we've been through tough times in the past. Uh, the stakes do seem higher right now than, than any time um, in, in the past. I would say this, though. The, the left has not used the term Marxist They've never been so bold in my lifetime with their policies uh, and admission of wanting to take more and more freedoms away from people. Uh, I, you know, some of you are older than me and maybe you've seen something like this before. I know the 60s were parallel in some ways, uh, the rioting and, and all that, but uh, it does, every election seems like the biggest one. This one may be, until the next one. Uh, does a constitutional-based government mean that we the people are the authorities? Uh, no, it means we decide who are the authorities. 
We're a republic. We vote for lawmakers, and then we are bound to submit to the laws made by those lawmakers. Uh, so we are not the government, but we decide who is in government. It's a huge responsibility, but it's not quite the same thing. The danger I see in this question, if you, if you say yes, this is, then I'm the law myself. And that's not true. Uh, once I vote someone to be a lawmaker, I got to submit to whatever laws they pass as long as it's not a direct violation uh, of Scripture. Anybody want to push back on that? Fight on it? Jordan, come on, Jordan. All right, one of the cries of the left is to abolish the Electoral College. What say you? If that happens, it will be the end of the Republic. If we ever get to where popular vote uh, wins, then the United States of America will cease to exist. And the founders said that. They abhorred the idea of a democracy. We are not a democracy. Popular vote being the, the decider, they said that'll be the end of the Republic. That's not how it works. Uh, it, it, think about how many people are in California. Now, there are fewer than there were a month ago or two months ago, but those massive areas have a lot of people. If they get to decide who our representatives are, then you can see where that's all gonna go. So it's in, it's exceedingly important. At all costs, we must, as a nation, keep the Electoral College or else we will cease to be who we are. <laughs> yes, Will? So the, the comment is there is something on the ballot this year in, uh, in Colorado to get rid of the Electoral College. I'm telling you, that is huge. Even if it goes away at the state level, that is significant. You know what we need to do, and I'm serious about this, Will, we need to get you and a couple other people who are concerned about these things. We need, just like, just like Marcy has done with the pro-life stuff, we need a small, so I'm putting you on the spot here, you don't have to answer me now, but if we could get two or three people to meet together and say, we will give a cliff notes, dumb down, succinct, here are the issues, here's a good perspective. Obviously, it doesn't mean your, this committee's perspective would be the final say and everything, but man, how helpful. Would, you, would anybody like that? Someone to put, okay. All right, so we'll see if the spirit moves. Um, but... Again, I, I come back to the judges. Every time I think, I'm going to do my research on these judges, and I search for information, and I don't know if I can even trust the people who are gathering the information, and there's not a lot of information, and I think, I don't know, but these judges are making huge decisions that impact our state, and I don't have a clue who they are and what their background is. So maybe if we could get a few people that would be willing to serve the body that way, that'd be great. Yeah, Steve? Yes. Yes. Same thing with the pro-life one. Yep. Yeah, great. In fact, if you guys come across any of that stuff, for now, would you send it to Alicia? 
and we'll filter through and see if we want to get it out to the whole body. We won't send everything out, but at least until we get this subcommittee that's going to save our land, uh, Alicia, Alicia could save our land, so just send them to her. You're welcome. Just a small task. I've assigned Marcy Little, we pray for her, I've assigned to her to eliminate and uh, abolish abortion in America. That's, it's just a small thing. And now Alicia is going to save our, our republic. So pray for her and it'll all, it'll all be good. Yes. We're going to get one though. You know, there used to be, uh, when Todd Cawthorn was still around and worked at Summit, I, he and Renee, she was a bulldog on this. She was great, uh, and especially at the state level. Obviously, she's in Virginia now, so probably doesn't, uh, isn't as familiar. But there's got to be some resources that, uh, and if you come across anything, again, send it to Alicia, and let's, let's get some of this out. And maybe, I don't know how much we can get it for November 3rd, but let's plan this for future elections and be a little more prepared. Yes, Kelly. Focus on the family or family research council. Did they? Okay. So that might be worth looking into as well. Oh, they don't do it anymore. Never mind. Yes. Okay, Jeff Crank, what a great name for a radio personality. I'm Jeff Crank, welcome to my Jeff Crank show. <laughs> You're gonna have a great time, I promise. Anybody else? Yes. I would second that, I know the producer of that show and she's very sound. Okay, so if you come across that, send something to Alicia. We'll, uh, we'll get it out to the, broad, to the broader body. And again, none of this is with like official frack endorsement. At this point, we haven't had the time to work through it, but at least it might be a resource to be worth your, uh, your looking at. What about Trump's awful moral character? How can we vote for him? As opposed to who? <laughs> yeah, I know that that's a, that's a question that as Christians we think, oh, but with at least, you know, that was, a, I would say, this is just my opinion, right? Um, in 2016, I would say that question carried a lot more weight. Four years later, we have seen his work. We have, it's not a speculation now, what will he do? We have seen what he has done. And to this point, uh, his past indiscretions and sins have not transferred into something where he's brought policies about that have been immoral and wicked, in, in my opinion. So uh, if we're going to simply start with moral character more so than policy of our candidate, we have almost no selection. Mike Pence, you know, I've only heard good things about his moral character, so maybe he would, he would be one, uh, which maybe throws a little weight toward Trump. He's got COVID, you know? I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't mean that. No, no, I don't, I'm serious. Oh, I don't mean that. I'm not, I'm serious. He's an older man, and... Trump Pence might be, you know, a step closer to getting something like, something like Trump. But I think we have to be very careful. And I do feel like I have to say this since it was brought up. If you have believed the lie of the fine people hoax in Charlottesville, you've been duped. That has been 
debunked a bazillion times. Donald Trump did not call Nazis, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, he didn't call any of them fine people. Every time the left puts those videos out, they cut out the most important part. If you go back and read the transcript or watch the entire video, he says, I condemn those groups entirely. He's talking about those who were debating whether or not to remove the statues, and there are fine people on both sides of that. But that is the one thing. Joe Biden said the other night that the left is using this against Trump, and it's all based on a lie. Now, that does not mean Trump has been a moral figure that you want to model your life after, that kind of thing, but let's at least be intellectually honest. Let's critique him on what he has done, not what lies are being told about him. And at this point, I don't see anything in his actions as president for the last four years that would render him morally unfit for the job. That's my, my opinion. Yeah, over here. He's my father-in-law. He ranks, sorry. The point I'd like to make on that question is that just on his abortion stance uh, is a reason to vote for it, if you ask me. Yeah, the statement, I mean, he, there's no doubt he's been the most pro-life president in my lifetime. So that, that's a, in his favor. What, what I, would, I would really care for us, it's not really a vote for Trump, but it's really a vote for the Republican Party and the platform that they stand on. So, uh, you know, just to the point where as soon as you mention Trump's name, you've got a whole bunch of people, you know, they just go... One side or the other. Yeah, the comment is, rather than thinking I'm voting for Trump versus voting for Biden, it's I'm voting for the Republican platform versus the Democratic platform. We're going to put this week, uh, Alicia, I'll let you know ahead of time now, uh, we're going to put up on the uh, on the website on that page where we have some of this documentation, we're going to put the, uh, the links to the Republican and the Democrat platform. I would encourage you to read them both. And especially as you read the Democrat platform, have some of these uh, things that we've been talking about in line, and you'll see it's there all the way down the line. Uh, The Family Research Council has good info on that? Great. Yes, Dennis. Well, you know, because I gave you an article from it once, so I get the Decision Magazine, Billigram Magazine, and the recent issue has a side-by-side -side comparison on the moral issues that are greatest concern to Christians and from the both platforms. Mm -hmm. It's a really good comparison about 12 or 13 different categories. Good. So Decision Mag Magazine also has a good comparison of these things you're saying. Jordan. All right, good. All right, we'll get the libertarian. There's just like three words, right? Man is free or stay off my freedom or something like that. Yes. The other thing about this whole, the original question there about the moral character to look at is that most of what you hear about the moral character of any of these candidates at whatever level is based upon a few media personalities and you got to look at that and say, hey, what, what am I being fed? What is truth? What is fact? Yeah. That is the, such a hard thing in this current society to ascertain. So that kind of voting doesn't make sense. you got to go to the platform. you got to look at actions. you got to look at stuff. Yeah, the comment is you're... Uh 
your, your opinion of these politicians is largely formed by people who have a bias. That, that's my interpretation, not, not his. Uh, and I've been saying that for months and months, in fact, a couple years now, and, and what's ironic is people think I'm one-sided on this. I have picked on Fox News more than anybody else from the, from the front here. Uh, if you just buy in and think Fox News has all the right answers, you are just as duped as the other side. They all have a business model that requires them to say things that get you to come back. That business model does not lend itself to being objective. Be very careful about believing any pundit, any group, and saying, oh, because I like what they're saying, therefore I can trust it. You can't. Their business model precludes it. Uh, so just realize your opinion is being informed by people who are trained hypnotists. <laughs> you, you need to do the work yourself to figure out what do they really stand for. And that's where the official documentation of the platforms can be very, very helpful. What do they say in writing they're standing for and that kind of thing. Yeah, great, great qualification. Did I see them in the hand somewhere? Yes, Kelly? The question is, uh, back to the Trump morality thing, since when have we judged someone from their past? I, I wouldn't want to be too far and say their, their past character has no impact or that it should have no impact. Uh, I mean, the, these men are, and eventually a woman, the, these people are very much, uh, they have got a lot of power, right? And so if they've proven themselves untrustworthy, uh, that should factor in. At least it does for me. Sure, sure. And that's what I'm saying with, with Trump, to go back and say past evil, uh, with him now we know what he's going to be in, in his presidency so we can evaluate what he's actually done as opposed to what might happen because he was a womanizer or because he said this or did this. Um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not disagreeing that we can't, we're, we're never going to find a saint to put in the office. But I would also say, you know, someone who's got a history of manipulation, deceit, lying, cheating, stealing, all those kind of things, okay, that's going to play into whether or not I vote for that person. Um, his, the biggest charge against him, I think, was his sexual past. You're almost never going to have a candidate from here till kingdom come that is not guilty of uh, that kind of sin. So we're, we're in trouble there. Yeah, so it's... It, Of course, of course. Moral character goes to, again, what candidate is there that doesn't have skeletons in the closet and doesn't have things we'd say that's sinful, it's immoral. Okay, so what do I do with that uh, information now as I, as I make uh, decisions? Does Marxism tie in with the environmentalists at all? Yes. I'm gonna keep this very short. Yes. <laughs> There is a fantastic book I commend to you called Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger. If you want to understand what's going on, he is a former climate alarmist who then began to actually study the studies and realized, oh, this is all political. There's an agenda. He would say global warming is happening. We're not anywhere near the alert level. And he walks through and just points out 
all the political stuff behind it. He's not on the right. He doesn't call himself a conservative or a Republican. He's very objective, which is interesting. And, he, and again, he's, he, he used to be on the other side. Apocalypse Never, it's a fantastic read. But yes, there is a... Uh, taking money, putting it in the government's hands seems to be the driving force between that. And I'm not going to take any questions on that. I'm kidding. You have any questions? Okay, good. Is that it? All right, any more from the floor here? Yes. Good question. Um, so in summary, tell me if I represent you well. Uh, someone just said recently that one in three evangelicals are deciding to stay home rather than gather publicly like we are here corporately. Um, and is there biblical spiritual benefit to gathering in this, in this setting as opposed to just watching online, that kind of thing? And I th if I can read the question behind the question is, uh, at what point are we wrong, are we sinning by not coming to public gathering? Is that in there somewhere? That's the question I have, put it this way. So I won't put that on you. Also. That's a question I wrestle with. At what point uh, are we disobeying? Yeah, so the answer to the first question, yes, there's benefit in gathering publicly, face-to-face, uh, -face, interacting. Um, it's not so much, I mean, the teaching, whether you're watching me on a screen or watching me here in person, uh, that maybe isn't a huge difference. Um, you, can, you can turn off the screen and just listen, right? You don't have to look at me. But the, the benefit of singing praise together, of a, an elder praying, and I, Rich, Rich, I forgot all about you, man. Oh. Rich was supposed to pray, and I, oh. Oh, I man, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, brother. That was, that was just on me. So there's benefit in having a pastor pray for you, an elder pray for you, if the pastor lets him. Um, uh, there's benefit in talking in, in before and after services. Absolutely. Obviously, we value that or we would go full online all, all the time. Um, so yes, there's benefit there. The, the question comes to my mind is, at what point might we be in sin, if at all, in staying at home rather than coming in the, in the assembly. And that's a harder one. Uh, you know, you have to factor in things like risk and, uh, and we would never want to put someone in true harm's way. And uh, I was sick two weeks, three weeks ago. I almost didn't come that Sunday to preach. I still don't know exactly what I said. 
entirely because I was not altogether here in my head, I think. Um, you know, I, it would have not been good for you all had I, if I had been as sick as I was two days before that, you wouldn't have wanted me to come and, and share those germs and that kind of thing. So there's some of that factors in. But absolutely, the question is, there benefit in gathering corporately? Yes. And uh, we need to weigh that uh, as, long, uh, uh, as well as all these other factors in, is it okay for me to keep staying home or should I take some of that risk and, and meet together. So we, we need to continue to ask that question and, and work through that. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to uh, expound a little bit or go beyond what you said about with you teaching virtually versus not virtually. I think you're wrong. In the sense <laughs> that together, there's a feeling within mm-hmm. the congregation as you're uh, teaching mm-hmm. and such that is a significant, to me, difference than you teaching from your home on the screen through Zoom. Hmm. There is a different feel, there's a different experience, and I will say personally, I get a lot more Hmm. here than getting the same thing Hmm. there. That's a good point. Uh, It it does make a difference. There is this interaction, whether you're conscious of it or not, Mm -hmm. it's there. Yeah, thanks. The comment is, it is different when you're here in receiving teaching as opposed to watching on a screen, and that's a benefit worth coming, is what I'm understanding you say. Yeah, thanks. Yes? Actually, I have two things, Doug. One, uh, addressing that we're from Missouri, so I don't know how the rules with Colorado and Missouri were in tandem, but at the beginning, we were totally shut down, and we did have Zoom, and I can't tell you for how long now, but for a while, and then we were could have 10 people. So our church put together a way, and I think the administrator was uh, the person that had to take care of this, but the pastor was one. Nine more people could register for a service 15 minutes long. (laughs) It was basically the opening, a five-minute message, communion. Don't get excited. If you heard that, a five-minute message, that'll, that's never going to happen. But, but, and we did that for a while, so that was better. I mean, not that the Zoom wasn't good, but that was better. And then we got to the point where you could have 25% of your seating mm-hmm. ability. And we have roped off and masks and all that. Um, so it's, we're coming down the line, but how long it's going to take, we don't know. Totally different matter. Um, And I don't know what Colorado did, but again, in the state of Missouri, our nursing homes and facilities were locked down. You could not go see any relative, father, mother, uncle, whoever it was, and the hospitals, if they're, it depended on what you had, they canceled all the selective surgeries. But um, we personally know of six people who passed away? They did not. Pa- not one passed away over COVID. Hmm. It was. I think they didn't understand. They lost their will to live. They were shut in their room, frequently a, a single room, hmm. handed a box meal. How long can you live like that? Yeah, yeah. There are there are consequences to the lockdowns for sure, and it's it's it's, it's a hard thing. Again, at the beginning, you can give lots of grace and certainly mid the uncertainty at some point it, it just seems unreasonable yeah okay people are walking out so do we have any more what if we win who's we how should how should christians attempt to legislate 
Can we legislate turn the other cheek? Um, so, if I can, if I understand the question, and if you're in the room, feel free to uh, correct me if I misunderstand. There is, there has to be a distinction, I think, between sins and crimes. There are some things that are sins that should not be crimes. In other words, the government should not be involved in everything. There are some things that are crimes that aren't sins, obviously, uh, as well. Um, so it's not like we just take the Bible. If you were, if you were a state rep or a senator, U.S. senator, just take the Bible and start enacting laws right out of the book of Ephesians or something. Uh, we are not a theocracy in that sense. And we're not supposed to, the Constitution forbids us to take a religion and bring that upon all the people. So no, shouldn't do that. However, if a Christian is in the role of lawmaker, he or she is going to make laws, he's, they're going to vote for laws that are consistent with biblical truth. That's good for everybody. So it's not the same thing as just voting straight out of Scripture, but it's your whole worldview. You're not going to support a law that is in violation of God's commands. So I wish we could fill both houses and the White House and state and local level, every level, with Christians. Think about how great life would be. It'd be awesome. All right, anything else? Anything else here real quick? Because people are getting restless. They're leaving. Last chance? All right, go to lunch. Thank you. Thanks for staying.